Mr. Bernstein at some point must have mentioned to Humphrey that he liked what I was doing with the keyboard conversations because Humphrey showed up for one of my New York keyboard conversation programs and invited me to lunch the next day. That's renowned pianist and leader of Keyboard Conversations, Jeffrey Siegel. He visits Scottsdale this February and March to continue the Keyboard Conversation series. We sat down to talk about the upcoming shows and a little behind-the-scenes story about him meeting Leonard Bernstein. I'm Melissa Green. Welcome to another episode of Heart of the Arts. So we'll just dive right in. What kind of camera do you have at the piano? Is it something really tiny and small? To be very honest with you, what you have here, what they call it the keyboard in the sky, is that the right terminology, (laughs) is unique to the Scottsdale Center. And there are several places that I play in this country that are familiar with the keyboard in the sky at the Scottsdale Center. And they'd like to have something similar where they are. I guess there are some legal problems with this because it's very difficult to achieve. To the best of my knowledge, the only place that has the keyboard in the sky with the camera six stories above me Mm -hmm. with my hands on the keys and a screen for the audience to look at, the only place that happens is here in Scottsdale. And for many people, it's an added bonus to come to a keyboard conversation program because they get to watch the hands on the keys. I have to confess, as a professional pianist, this is a mystery to me, that anybody would be fascinated with watching hands and fingers on a keyboard. We all have two hands and ten fingers. What's the fascination? But apparently, and it's something I, as a pianist, cannot understand, this is an added uh, added bonus for people to come to a piano concert. They get to watch yeah, the hands on the keys. I don't know why, but okay, mm-hmm. if this this makes the concert more exciting and interesting, oh, I'm all for it. I think it does, for sure. You know, we all watch YouTube videos, and that's one of the only ways we can get that up-close vision of the pianist's hands moving. And when you're doing short little runs, it's interesting for the audience to see. So that was really cool about the show. And I know we wanted to talk about a few things here today. Where should we begin? What would be good is to talk a bit about the specifics of the upcoming program because it's particularly attractive, musical Valentines. Yes. Yes, it's not happening on Valentine's Day, but as I said to the audience last night, love will still be in the air. Mm-hmm. It'll be a week after Valentine's Day. And the program is made up of compositions that were inspired by romantic love, and particularly with the music of Robert Schumann, if ever there was a composer whose music was inspired by what's going on in his love life, and there's a direct connection. That composer is Robert Schumann. We're going to also have works of Chopin and Liszt and Rachmaninoff. It's a very, very uh, attractive and accessible program. And Mm -hmm. uh, as I've said uh, to the audience members, bring a significant other and you can hold hands throughout. Mm -hmm. Um, It's uh, some of the greatest romantic music ever written. And it becomes all the more meaningful to listen to when you know what's going on in the composer's love life that affects this particular piece of music. And we sometimes have letters to document, you know, I write this today because no letter came from you. (laughs) Yeah, it's so sweet. We've talked a little bit about romance and um, expectations nowadays and how it just seems so different. I guess from, you know, the 21st century nowadays, I'm like, is it is it all authentic? 
It's certainly authentic. One doesn't have to read in very, very, very much. Uh, you know what's going on in the composer's life in the music that's written at that time, and there's no question that there's a connection. And mm -hmm. believe it or not, most of the people sitting in the audience are human beings who've had a life experience with romance, with living, with dying, etc. And yeah. that's why these great works of classical music reach out to us, mm -hmm. because we all bring as listeners uh, the human experience with us. And yeah. the music, word, the wordless narrative that it is, goes right through to our hearts and to our minds and to our past histories and uh, makes that stimulating listening experience. Um, because you're having a conversation throughout your show, does it keep you more connected to the music? I've talked to people who tour and play a lot of shows and sometimes they stray away from being in the moment or they're like, oh, when I play this piece or when I sing this song, sometimes my mind is elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm not really thinking about the meaning. How is that for you as an artist? And does do these conversations and having that intimacy with the audience keep you more in the moment? I have to say that it's the opposite for me. Very often, uh, for one reason or another, I walk into the concert hall and I have a lot on my mind. Am I going to be able to make the plane tomorrow morning? Mm -hmm. um, I hope I remember to pay this bill before I left the house, etc., etc. <laughs> but once I get on stage and I start to play or to talk about the pieces of music I'm playing, that takes me away. And I get so involved in that and the privilege of sharing this with the people who've taken the time and trouble to come to the audience to hear these programs, that it takes me away. To the extent that I can't concentrate or don't wish to concentrate on anything else, the music consumes me. You have, yeah, you have the romantic pieces, and then in March you're coming back with basically your favorite pieces, composers from the 18th century, correct? Yes, yeah, so when we talk about the great classic composers, we're talking about Mozart and Beethoven and Haydn. These composers wrote music 200-plus years ago that are at the forefront of the active concert repertory today. The reason being, these are the greatest pieces of music ever written. Mm -hmm. There have been different pieces of music written by other composers, but nothing better than this. And so I thought it would be interesting to take this program, base it essentially around Mozart, mm -hmm. but also... Composers who influenced Mozart, Franz Josef Haydn, for example, who was considered the greatest composer of the day, and a composer whom Mozart inspired, Ludwig van Beethoven. And to have music of these three great composers of this period and um, have some very popular pieces of all three of them. For example, one of the things Mozart asked Beethoven to do when Beethoven visited Mozart as a very young man was to um, improvise variations on a melody. Mm -hmm. Show me, you know, what you're able to do if I give you a melody and you know, you go with it, so to speak, on the spot. Well, an example of this is Beethoven writes a series of variations on God Save the King. The melody, of course, is familiar to all of us. What Beethoven does with that melody shows his imagination and his craft as a composer. Mozart also was able to take a melody which everybody knows and seems perfectly self-contained in itself and elaborate upon it and write imaginative variations. For example, twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> so the audience can admire what these composers are doing with these well-known melodies because the melodies are very well-known. 
But what does a composer with imagination and craft do with these melodies? Also, the inspiration in so many ways for both Haydn, uh, for both Beethoven and for Mozart was the music of Haydn. Why? Mm -hmm. What was there about this witty, uh, deeply felt music that inspired these two great composers? So in essence, that's the, that's the program. So what are all of the things you need to be a great improviser, in your opinion? Imagination, uh, fluency, uh, it, it's, a, it's a gift. But one should be very careful. There's a big difference between a, a great improviser and a great composer. The great composer has to take what's been improvised mm -hmm. and use his craft as a composer to put it all together in a piece of music that's more than the sum of its parts. So they're really two different things. And you talked a little bit last time about Mozart and how Beethoven, you know, they were writing for special occasions. But sometimes when you hear his music, people might describe it as they kind of almost know what's coming next, and there's comfort in that. It's interesting that you say that, that people know what's coming next, that there's a predictable series yeah. of musical events mm -hmm. I remember when I was studying musical composition in music school, the teacher said something that I've thought of many times since then. He said, if you want to look at perfect compositions of a form where you, where the composer is writing music where you pr can predict what's happening next, look at the work of second-rate composers because the great ones always go beyond that. You may think you know what's coming mm -hmm. up, but they always have an imaginative surprise for you. And that's certainly the case with the Mozart works and the Haydn works that we're going to be having on the program. Speaking of the program and your style, we were going to talk a little bit about, I don't know how I would describe it, but your time spent with Leonard Bernstein because you played yeah. this piece that no one has, and you told us a little bit about how it came across your table, and I was just curious about that experience and the conversation that you got to have with him. Yes, this was in November 1988, a couple of years before Mr. Bernstein passed away, and I was the piano soloist, white tie and tails and all, with the New York Philharmonic with Zubin Mehta conducting for a series of concerts mm -hmm. that second week of November of 88. Uh, and Mr. Bernstein was in the same hall during that week rehearsing and conducting a concert of his own music. So we were seeing one another frequently, coming and going for rehearsals, etc. And I came in early for one of the morning rehearsals, and he was alone in his room, and he beckoned for me to come in. And he says, Jeffrey, I've been hearing about these keyboard conversations that you do. Mm -hmm. um, my publicist, Maggie Carson, attends your programs and has been telling me about them. Mm -hmm. um, I want to know what you're doing with these programs because I'm a great believer that the worst ones to talk about music are musicians. Yeah, that's right. It that's really what shocked me to hear him, of all people, saying that. And I must have looked shocked <laughs> when he said it because, well, think about it. We're trained as musicians to communicate in tones, not words about tones. That's mm -hmm. a separate discipline. So tell me, what do you do? <laughs> I understand you played the Moonlight Sonata a couple of weeks ago. Maggie told me about this. What did you say about it? So 
as bravely as I could, I began to tell him my approach. And as I'm talking to him, the smile on his face is getting larger and larger. Finally, he stops me and he embraces me and he teasingly points his finger at me and says, I think I know where you got this idea, Jeffrey, from me. <laughs> and of course, that's true. He was the great inspiration to be able to talk briefly and in a non-technical language before turning around the conductor to play a piece of music and to bring the audience in for a richer and more accessible musical experience. And eventually Mr. Bernstein passed away and one of his dear friends was engaged to write the official biography of Leonard Bernstein. This was Sir Humphrey Burton from the BBC. And Mr. Bernstein at some point must have mentioned to Humphrey that he liked what I was doing with the keyboard conversations because Humphrey showed up for one of my New York keyboard conversation programs and invited me to lunch the next day and then said to me very casually at this lunch, you know, Jeffrey, I have an unpublished piano piece of Lenny's. Would you like a copy of it? And that's how it came about, and that's how that's the background for the story I may have related to you when we last talked. Yeah, and he was the inspiration for the work you do. I think come. he wanted to infect, and it was his word, everyone, with the joy of music, with the enrichment of great music in a person's life. And he was on fire to transmit the joy of these great works of classical music for everybody and uh this is what inspired him to do the programs, which we know from television, of course, mm -hmm. but also inspired him to, to want to do in a day. I mean, it's much easier just to get up and conduct or sit down and play, but to formulate a, a, a format that would reach out to everybody and make the great music accessible to more people. That was a goal of his. Yeah, yeah. And what was your impression after that whole experience? Was your impression of Leonard Bernstein heightened? Uh, what really heightened, what heightened me, so to speak, was that he believed so strongly in what I was doing and approved of the format that I was using. Uh, and that he, he must have mentioned it to Humphrey Burton because yeah. as a result of that, I have this unpublished piano That's piece. That's so cool. Do you agree that musicians are the worst people to talk about music? What was your response to that, or what is it today? I know from experience how long it took me and continues to take me to develop a format that is not boring, that is not a lecture with musical examples, but a concert with prefiscatory commentary. It's not easy, and it's not natural. We all would rather sit down and just play, so to speak. But... Um, he was the inspiration for the programs, and I've been doing them for more than a half century in various places. So um, it's been very meaningful, that connection with him. How do you bring new life to pieces that you've played for so long? What's very interesting is, you know, somebody was reminding me that one of the pieces I played in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, I had played on the same series 40 years ago. And they asked me, aren't you tired of it? <laughs> the, the real answer is that you're more excited than ever to play the piece, because not only don't they wear out their welcome, you see more and more in them that uh, excites you as a musician and that you want to share with your fellow music lovers. Um, these great works of musical art are great because they don't ever wear out their welcome. And we're always you know, finding much in them to love and to admire. 
again, we talked about the importance of live performance. Do you, because you're always touring, do you get a chance to get out and see people? Who would get you out of your house today? Uh, there are various friends of mine who are magnificent artists whose, if, if I have a chance to hear them, I certainly take, take the time. Mm-hmm. But one of the drawbacks of a busy professional schedule such as my own is that you don't have the free time very often to go to hear your your colleagues. I did a great deal of that when I was younger, particularly as a music student, and I had the time. But um, it's it's actually rare now that I have the opportunity to actually go to a concert and hear somebody I'd like to hear. Yeah, yeah. So what what else do you have coming up um, outside of the uh, two upcoming performances? What else are you? I do the keyboard conversations in several different uh, American cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but last count, I think there were 12 of them. So I uh, will be on the road until the middle of May. And um, I shall take myself a European vacation after that. And the mm. summer for me is a time of work. It's where the repertoire and the research for my remarks is really the real work is done during the summer at home. So that when the season starts again after Labor Day, I'm ready to go. Okay. So you're you're doing research as you plan the next right. tour, the next Right. Because once once the touring starts after Labor Day, there really isn't much time to do the kind of uh, research and the kind of real piano practicing that needs to be that this all has to be done in the summer is that work that you do at home just kind of in solitude uh, I have a, a good size library at home but uh, I'm also very frequently going into the Juilliard library my alma mater uh, as an alum I'm ally- allowed to do that and mm. um, uh, I I I'm fascinated by the composers and these compositions that I'm privileged to play. And the the research is an act of love. It really is. Yeah, it's beautiful. What are some of your favorite things that you get to uh, just kind of coming back around to keyboard conversations? What are some of the questions that, uh, you know, during the Q&A that keeps you inspired or maybe is just that confirmation that you're coming across to people the way you intended? I particularly, if I may say so, find the questions that come from the Scottsdale audience after our Scottsdale Center programs to be um, very intriguing and interesting. And I think it was here several years ago that a 10-year-old boy got away from his mother's grasp and put up his hand proudly and said, Mr. Siegel, how many hours a day did Bach have to practice? <laughs> and I think I know where that came from. <laughs> uh, you get that from uh, you know everything from that to how many hours a day do you practice and did your mother make you play? And uh, what edition did you use of that Beethoven sonata that you played? And it's wonderful that the audience at the end of the keyboard conversation programs feels free and encouraged to ask whatever questions they would like. It's an important part of the program where the audience is encouraged to participate. Yeah, um, that's my other impression of just kind of feeling like you're, no matter what seat you have, you're kind of sitting next to the artist and really getting uh, an immersive experience. We try to offer something through the live concert, through the keyboard conversation format, which goes beyond what you're going to get on Facebook or putting on a recording or listening to something. We want want there to be a reason that you take the time and trouble to come to this hall for this live experience. 
Well, I enjoy it, and I look forward to seeing you again here in Scottsdale. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you very much. Renowned keyboardist Jeffrey Siegel talking about his upcoming shows. The Keyboard Conversations return to Scottsdale February 21st and March 14th. For tickets and more information, head to scottsdaleperformingarts.org. For KBOX Heart of the Arts, I'm Melissa Green.